welcome to a brand new series. We spent about the first half of this year in a series called The Way of Jesus, and we are starting a brand new series today called Law School. And we're calling it Law School because for this series, we're going to be spending the next 10 weeks in the Law of God, more commonly known as the Ten Commandments. So the goal for this series is to, um, from now till the, the final Sunday in August, we got 10 Sundays, the goal is to spend each Sunday in one of uh, the, the, the uh, commandments and uh, look at a passage of Scripture, either in Old or New Testament, that sort of elaborates on the meaning and the spirit um, of that particular commandment and how it, it uh, is still so relevant and applicable for our lives today. So before we get to the first commandment and the text that, that, that uh, elaborates on it, <clears throat> I wanted to lay the foundation of this series because this series actually has a thesis statement behind it. Here it is. I'll lay it out to you, and we'll probably remind you of this before each one of the, the, um, the teachings in this series. But here it is. The thesis statement is that true freedom is not the absence of restrictions. It is the presence of the right restrictions. I will say it again. All right. True freedom is not the absence of restrictions. It is the presence of the right restrictions. Here's, here's why this is important. In our uh, modern secular culture, one of the most powerful, if not the dominant narrative that we are, I don't care how long you've been walking with Jesus or however you consider yourself, you know, traditional, modern, secular, whatever, all of us living in this culture are kind of perpetually being bombarded with this narrative that uh, you should be free to do whatever you want with your life. That means um, nobody gets to tell you who to be, how to live, what to do. And, and more than anything, you specifically hear this one a lot, is that no one can try to impose their understanding of right or wrong on you because you and everybody else has to decide what's right and wrong for yourselves. There's all kinds of things that we could say about that and the societal implications of that that we're literally witnessing right now before our very eyes. But I'll simply say this, in a culture like that, in a culture like ours, when you when you say the word commandment, walls immediately go up because the thought process is, well, hang on, if there are commandments that I need to abide by, then that compromises my freedom. So I'm not interested in that, all right? You let, you let me know if God has 10 suggestions or 10 considerations, but not 10 commandments. There's an assumption underneath that mindset, and the assumption is that freedom and restrictions are incompatible. I would like to challenge that assumption and offer to you that not only are freedom and restrictions, uh, not only are they not incompatible, uh, but actually freedom requires restrictions. And as a society, I think we understand this in almost every area. For, for whatever weird reason, we just believe that the same concept doesn't apply morally. Here's what I mean. Everybody understands the truth of this concept in the physical realm. For instance, if I desire the freedom of having a, a, health, a, a body that works, that functions as it is designed to function, and, and I desire the freedom uh, to enjoy uh, good health and hopefully long life, uh, or at least good health during my life, then I have to accept certain restrictions. Namely, I don't get to eat whatever I want all the time, and I have to work out even when I don't feel like it. Uh, relationally, I think we understand this concept pretty well. I'm not saying we're good at it as a society. I think we just understand the concept. Uh, relationally, if I desire to have healthy, vibrant relationships with my family, that's my wife and my children, uh, there are certain restrictions that those, those relationships, if I want them to be healthy, if I want to have the freedom of that, 
then there are restrictions that I need to accept. Namely, I don't get to make a promise to Katie at an altar and bring four children into this world who did not ask to be here. I don't get uh, to make that promise and bring those kids on board and then continue to live as a single man. I don't get to continue to live like I don't have commitments and responsibilities to other people. And what I need to do if I want the freedom of a great family and a great marriage and great relationships with my kids as they age, I need to constantly war against the self-centered desires of this sinful heart of mine and choose to love, honor, and serve my wife and my children and put their wants and needs daily, if not moment by moment, ahead of my own. But as I said, for whatever weird reason, we fail to understand this concept. We, we, we kind of, as a society, now I'm speaking, not you personally, but as a society, we, we, we understand the validity of this concept in the physical realm, even to a degree in the relational realm. But for some reason, we think the rules don't apply morally. And, and, and what I'm offering to you is that this concept of freedom and restriction going hand in hand, it, it undergirds not only the Ten Commandments, but every single command that God lays out for his people in his word. So I just would ask you to consider on the front end of this teaching and all through this series that when we look at these commandments, what we're looking at is the restrictions that a God who loves us and is way smarter than us, we're looking at the restrictions that he has set forth for us so that we might experience the freedom and the flourishing for which we have been made. Now, we're free because God didn't design robots. We are free to disregard those restrictions, just as we are in the physical and in the relational realm. But if we do, if we disregard the restrictions that God has set forth, what we will discover, and what I'm sure a lot of us have discovered a time or two in our lives, is that in our attempts to live free, we have ironically become enslaved to a way of life that actually violates our design. So one more time. True freedom is not the absence of restrictions. It is the presence of the right restrictions. A lot more to be said there, but basically the purpose of this series is to prove that thesis correct. Give me 10 weeks to do it, and then tell me if I did a good job or not, I guess. So the first commandment, and I'm quoting from the King Jimmy version of the Bible here, the classic version, is thou shalt have no other gods before me, says God. The passage that we're going to look at that really embodies and sort of expands on that command for us is found in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, so let me read that and we'll get into it. Paul wrote, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Good morning, everyone. Since what can be known about God is evident among them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became nonsense, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in the cravings of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served something created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. This is God's word. I believe it was Martin Luther who originally said that the first commandment is the first commandment because you don't break any of the other nine without breaking it first. Uh, First off, I think he's right, and hopefully by the end of this teaching you'll agree, but if he is right, what that means is that every breakdown in your and my life 
can be traced back to a breakdown between us and the first commandment. Therefore, if you want to understand the tension and the turmoil that you are experiencing in your life right now, all you need to do is understand the first commandment. And what the first commandment says is, you shall have no other gods before me. Here's what the first commandment does not say. It does not say, if you happen to have a God, if you're one of those religious people that need that kind of thing, then make sure that you have me, says God. It doesn't say that. The first commandment comes with an assumption, and that's that whoever hears it and receives it is already worshiping something. You already functionally have a God. And what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 1 is that every single human heart has broken the first commandment, and he, he walks us through in, in kind of, I would say, sobering detail exactly what has happened to us individually and corporately as the human race as a result of our failure to keep it. So what I want to talk about today, uh, really three, three moves to this teaching. We'll talk about, first off, the inevitability of idolatry. We're going to talk about the effects of idolatry. And then lastly, we're going to talk about the end of idolatry. So first off, let's talk about its uh, inevitability. <clears throat> The summary statement of everything Paul's saying here is at the end of this passage in verse 25 where he says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served something created instead of the creator who is praised forever, amen. So you notice uh, Paul really only holds up two options here. You worship created things or you worship the one who created him. There are no alternatives. Uh, obviously, Paul was writing 2,000 years ago in the Roman Empire um, where idolatry was rampant. And literally, when you walked into a home, you would see more than a few physical, literal idols in those homes. Uh, so I think what's common, and if, if you're going to talk about idolatry in this culture, you kind of have to start here. It's common for modern people to look at this and say, all right, well, that was then, but this is now. Uh, We don't live in a pre-scientific, polytheistic culture. We live in a secular culture. People don't believe in many gods. In fact, a lot of people don't believe in any god now. So what are we doing talking about idolatry? Um, That mindset betrays a very shallow and imperfect understanding of the biblical concept of idolatry. Um, On occasion, I've, I've, you know, talked to Christians that have that mindset, but I can tell you, even if you don't have that mindset, people that you know and love do. And so the question is, well, how are you going to talk about this topic to them? Here's, here's what I've come up with. I think the most helpful thing, if you're going to talk about idolatry on Sunday morning, is to begin by asking the question, all right, what exactly is an idol? <clears throat> I have not found a more helpful book that aims very narrowly at that particular topic than a, a book written by Tim Keller called Counterfeit Gods, which I would recommend to anybody. And in that book, here's how he defines an idol. He says, it is anything more important to you than God Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. So what that means is you might believe in God, as I'm sure the majority of people that hear this teaching do, but if anything is more uh, important to you functionally, to your happiness, uh, to your identity, to your hope, to your meaning in life. If anything is more important to you and giving you those things than God, then in the biblical sense of the word, that thing is your idol. Uh, Idolatry tends to have a certain kind of language. An idol is something that you look at, uh, maybe you're working for it in life, and, and the language of idolatry is, if I could get that, then my life would be worth living. Um, maybe you already have that thing in your possession. Uh, in that case, the language of idolatry is, because I have this, my life is worth living. 
But then with that, the other side of that coin is, but if I lost this, my life would no longer be worth living. So idolatry isn't just a failure to obey God. It's a resting of your heart on something other than God. And when you realize that about idolatry, you realize one of the things that makes it so tricky, one of the things that makes it so pervasive, one of the things that makes it um, something that is so difficult to deal with in a lasting way is that most of the idols that enslave the human heart are not obviously overtly bad things. They're good things that we've turned into ultimate things. And the Bible uh, bears this out for us cover to cover in all kinds of countless ways. So let me just give you real quickly sort of a flyover of some of the things that can be idols based on the entire story of the Bible. First off, the story of Adam and Eve shows us that control can be an idol. God set the parameters for what, um, what human life was going to be like, what was on limits, what was off limits. Adam and Eve said, we don't think God should have that control. We want to define right and wrong for ourselves. We want to define the parameters of our own lives. That what that issue was about in Genesis chapter 3 in the garden is who's in control. And what that story shows us is first and foremost, control can be an idol. The story of Cain and Abel uh, is a really powerful reminder that your reputation can be an idol. The story of Isaac tells us that a child can be an idol. The story of Leah uh, tells us that a spouse can be an idol. The story of Jacob tells us that parental approval can be an idol. The story of um, Ruth, particularly the character Elimelech, shows us comfort can be an idol. Jonah shows us that the national security of your people can be an idol. You spill on into the New Testament. The woman at the well shows us that the attention of men can be an idol. The uh, prodigal son in the parable of the two lost sons shows us that pleasure can be an idol. And of course, Paul on in the New Testament in his epistles over and over again is reminding us of, uh, that things like sex and things like possessions and even things like morality can be idols. The point is the Bible is one long warning cover to cover that's meant to tell all who read it that your heart can and will turn everything it comes across in this life into an idol. So here's the question, who cares? That is precisely the, think about it, that is the question that people in Rome had. This is a culture that was so knee-deep in um, idolatry uh, as a a, uh, polytheistic culture where everybody, there really was no no such thing as atheism the way that we think of atheism in the Roman Roman Empire. They swam in idolatry like a fish swims in water. It's going to have very difficult time understanding that it's even in water to begin with, let alone that, you know, maybe idolatry is bad. Uh, That's a question worth answering because socially, um, we're actually becoming a lot more like the Roman Empire than we realize. Uh, uh, Here we are again, we are a pluralistic society where as long as you don't say you have the truth, you're fine. Everybody can have a truth, but the moment that somebody claims exclusivity, all of a sudden everybody starts to lose their minds, but everybody functionally has an idol. That is the Roman Empire, the, the, the culture that the gospel you know, grew and took its first steps in. So, the, so the, the, uh, the mindset for a lot of people in our culture, same as it was in Rome, is what's the big deal with giving your heart to these things? It makes people happy. You know, it gives them a reason to get out of bed in the morning. What's the issue? Paul actually answers that question here in a, a probably more concise way than any other singular part in Scripture. <clears throat> One of the great themes of the Bible is that idolatry is a, it's a dangerous thing primarily because idolatry leads to dehumanization. And I want to be clear what I mean and what I don't mean there. I don't, I don't mean that if, if you practice idolatry, 
that you'll dehumanize other people, although that might certainly happen. What the Bible teaches primarily is that if you idolize things other than the one true God, you yourself will be dehumanized. Idolatry erodes the parts of you that make you human. There's, there's um, probably no, um, no passage in Scripture that lays this out as succinctly as Psalm 135, verses, um, let me read to you, verses 15 to 18. It says, The idols of the nations are of silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear. Indeed, there's no breath in their mouths. Now listen to this. Those who make them are just like them, as are all who trust in them. What the Bible's getting across there is that if you, as a, as a human being, as a person, if you worship idols which are things instead of the person of the living God, then you will become less of a person and more of a thing yourself. Idols dehumanize you. And what Paul is doing here in Romans 1 is he's explaining in detail what that psalm only lays out as a concept because that psalm simply says what will happen. It doesn't exactly explain why it happens or what that looks like or what the symptoms are, but Paul actually does here. And Paul says that idolatry will break you down. It will break down your humanity in three areas. Idolatry affects the head, the hands, and the heart. Another way to phrase this is it affects, it affects your cognition, your volition, your hands, your will, what you do, and your emotion, the center of your affections and desires, your heart. <clears throat> so let me walk through this. First off, uh, and, and actually pr- pr- primarily, uh, Paul explains that, that idolatry affects the head. In verses 21 and 22, it says, For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Here's the very first symptom of idolatry, according to Paul. This is what happens when you do not center your life on the living God. It says, instead, their thinking became nonsense and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. A fool in the Bible is not somebody who does bad things all the time. A fool is very simply, this is laid out in all kinds of creative ways in the book of Proverbs, a fool according to the biblical sense of the word, is somebody who simply is out of touch with reality. They do not see reality clearly. Therefore, as a result, they constantly um, operate in a way that violates reality, and they're perpetually surprised by the results. So when Paul says their minds were darkened, that's a really important uh, image he's giving us. A fool is somebody who moves through life like somebody trying to move through a room that is pitch black with no light source in it. They're unable to navigate it skillfully. Uh, They bump into things that they otherwise would be very uh, easily able to avoid. Uh, And as a result, they cause themselves and the people around them a great deal of harm. That's exactly what Paul is saying happens to somebody uh, to the degree that idolatry sets in in your heart. What will happen, the first telltale sign is, and I'll just quote him, your thinking will become nonsense and your mind will become darkened. What that means is not only will you become increasingly out of touch with reality around you, but you will become increasingly out of touch and unaware of the reality within you. It's not just uh, that you can't see the world for what it is, you won't even be able to see what's going on in your own heart for what it is. So, so, Thinking through what Paul is saying here, here's what this means, and I think this is pretty sobering. What this means is that if in hearing a teaching about idolatry, you have already excused yourself and said, ah, this isn't really something that I struggle with, but I know some people who need to hear this. 
And if already that, that person who really struggles with money has come to your mind, or that person who really struggles with their physical appearance comes to your mind, or that person who's a real people pleaser, their God must be acceptance and approval, comes to your mind. If you're already thinking more about whoever that person is than you, I'm just telling you, according to Paul, that's a really bad sign. Because what idols do is to the degree that they embed themselves in a human heart, they weave what you could call a delusional field around themselves. They minimize their impact on their host. What this means is that when we begin, you can kind of see why the Ten Commandments started here now, I think. What this means is when we begin to introspect, to face ourselves, to look into our own hearts, and to really get serious about finding out which idols are pulling the strings, what we're doing is looking for something that is exceptionally good at hiding from us. First and foremost, idols go after the head, the cognition. They affect what you see. Secondly, Paul says here that they affect the uh, will or the hands. In verse 25, it says, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Pay real careful attention to this verbiage. And they worshiped and served something created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Uh, what Paul is doing here, years and years and years before um, Freud or Jung or, or any modern-day psychoanalysts, he, Paul is making, under the inspiration of God, obviously, a profound comment about human behavior. Uh, this is what I mean. A lot of people in our culture, talked about this earlier, cringe at the idea of giving my life to God because that might mean that he's going to tell me to do stuff I don't want to do or tell me that I can't do stuff that I really want to do. So the thought process for a lot of people is, okay, I got two options. Give my life to God or live a free life. Give up your freedom in order to serve God or just be this free autonomous human being. Paul says, if that's what you think, you have a very naively simplistic and inaccurate understanding of the human condition. Freedom's not an option. It's a question of who or what you serve. Uh, and, and, and here's, here's kind of how you walk through that. And I think this is, this is really important. If, 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 if we, if all of us who are followers of Jesus, if we desire to communicate the gospel message in a way that makes sense to people in a modern culture that so prizes freedom, uh, we have to learn to, to me, this is what an effective gospel presentation is going to sound like. Every human heart has to live for something. Forget whether or not you believe in the God of the Bible or the Bible itself or go to church or read the, all that kind of stuff. Every human being has to live for something. Whether, you know, the most secular um, cultural analysts and sociologists all affirm uh, human beings are irreducibly hope-based creatures. We have to orient our lives around something and, and have something that kind of gets us out of bed in the morning. Whatever that thing is, that is your master. <clears throat> so think about it this way. Uh, if you live for love and romance, as so many people do in our culture, if you live for love and romance, you're not in control. You are controlled by the people whose love you want, period. Whatever else you want to tell yourself, that is, that's the reality. Uh, if, for, for, for instance, another example, if you live for money and power, then you will do anything it takes. You will make any sacrifice necessary, be it your family, your mental health, your rest, all the things that are actually valuable in this life to get those things because that's what basically your God is demanding that you do only to find no matter how much you get of those things, it always leaves you, uh, leaves you wanting a little bit more. The point is none of us are in control of our lives. We are controlled by the thing that we live for. So when an idol takes the place of God, Paul would say, you're not free, you've just traded masters. <clears throat> and we'll talk about this at the end. 
God is a far kinder master than any other idol. But number three, uh, the heart. Idols affect the, the head, secondly, the hands. Lastly, though, he says they affect the heart. In verse 24, it says, God, therefore, God delivered them over, and special attention to this phrase, in the cravings of their hearts. The Greek word translated uh, cravings in my Bible is a word that almost everywhere the New Testament talks about idolatry, this Greek word is, is going to be nearby. You may have heard me talk about this before. The Greek word is epithumia. It means epi-desire. Think like epicenter. When you talk about the epicenter of an event, that's where that event's impact is most profoundly felt. And so what Paul is talking about here, the cravings of their hearts, an epithumia is not necessarily a sinful desire. It's simply an an inordinate, over-the-top desire. Here's the point. Idolatry, if it affects the head by controlling what you see, and it affects the hands by controlling what you do, what Paul's explaining here is that idolatry affects the heart by, by controlling not only what, but how deeply you desire. Idolatry creates what you could call super desires, inordinate, over-the-top, burnout level, if nothing is done, you're going to have a meltdown eventually kinds of desires uh, to the point where you not only have to have whatever that idol is, but if, if anything threatens it, then you will experience paralyzing anxiety. Uh, If another person takes it away from you, you'll experience paralyzing bitterness and anger. Or if you never get it because of whatever reason, you will experience paralyzing guilt and shame and feelings of failure and inadequacy, and that idol will never forgive you. It will never let you up. So Paul is saying here that idolatry, if left unchecked in the human heart, it erodes Uh, our minds, it erodes uh, our actions, our hands, and it erodes our hearts. And so unless something's done, then it will erode in a holistic way everything about us that actually makes us human. Now, before I move on and talk about what what can be done about this, I just want to point something out that dawned on me when I was putting this teaching together. Here we have, to me, an extremely compelling answer to a really important question. I don't know if you've ever had this question before. Maybe you had it, but you felt too bad to say it out loud, so I'll just do it for you. Over the years as a pastor, every once in a while, I've had somebody um, who was brave enough to admit to me that they really had trouble with this idea of a God who commands us to love and worship Him uh, because they've, they've explained you know, that that really seems like kind of narcissistic or self-centered, and if God is perfect, then how could He command that? Here we have a really compelling answer to that question. And what we're seeing here is God does not command us to worship him for his sake. He commands us to worship him for our sake. The reason we are to have no gods before the one true God is because this is the, this is, not only is he the only God worthy of our worship, I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, not only is the God of the Bible the only one worthy of your worship, he's the only one safe for you to worship. Meaning he is the only being, the only God that you can center your entire life around who will not distort your life. Instead, he will bring you to life. What we will find when we lose ourselves in him is that we find who we were always meant to be. All right. Problem is, we're not good at this, which is basically what Paul is laying out in Romans chapter 1. And if you need examples, then look around you, Helen. Uh, since Genesis chapter 3, everything has been, you know, taking the place of God in our hearts and it leads to all this breakdown. So the question is, um, what are we going to do about it? How can idolatry be ended? And I want to answer that question in two ways and then, uh, and then we'll be done. 
So let's talk how, how to put an end to idolatry. Two simple ideas that we could spend the rest of our lives on. The first is this. Idols have to be identified. If you're going to talk about uh, unseating the idols of your heart, then first off, you have to know what it is that you're dealing with. You have to name it. You have to identify it. You have to know what you're dealing with. Um, I'm sure that there are some people that have a pretty good idea of what your idols are. Um, however, that being said, I didn't even really... This, this whole topic of idolatry and that kind of thing, you know, in case you feel bad, don't. I was born and raised in the church. I, my father and my uncle were pastors. I went to Christian private school from first through 12th grade. This concept never really started to get real to me, I think until uh, basically until I became a pastor. And so I'm sure there's people who are new to this topic today, uh, and, and you're really not sure what your idols are, but of course you want to find out. Uh, and, of course, even if you, you think you do know, like we talked about earlier, they're really good at lying to us and deceiving us. So here's the question. How can I know what my idols are? How can you know what idols right now are functionally competing with the place that only God deserves in your heart? I'm going to give you three things that will absolutely reveal your idols to you. And they are not fun. They are for people uh, who want to face themselves. Three little fun exercises that you can start this week, all right? I guarantee you, whatever your idols are, if you run them through these three grids, you're going to find them out. Number one, look at your imagination. One of the, just dead silent, you could hear a pin drop after that. One of the the, um, quickest ways to discover what has taken the place of God in your life is to simply pay attention to where your mind goes when nothing else demands your attention. Uh, this could be a daydream of some sort of uh, alternate reality that you think would be really great. Uh, it could, of course, be a fantasy. Uh, but it doesn't have to be a positive thing. It could also be some kind of worst-case scenario that uh, you're constantly experiencing anxiety about, that, again, your mind just naturally gravitates there. And here's, here's, here's what to do with this. When you realize whatever that is, that daydream, that fantasy, that apocalyptic nightmare that just seems to be the place that your mind effortlessly goes, the question is, what's really going on there? What does that image represent? Um, what, what is being revealed in the fact that my mind, what's underneath that, uh, where, that place that my imagination goes? That will reveal whatever's actually functionally in control of your heart, regardless of what you would, you would say on a test. Uh, that will reveal it really quickly. If that doesn't, number two... Look at how you respond to unanswered prayers and frustrated hopes. All right, if, if you work really hard for something, I know this is going to hit home with people, if you've worked really hard for something, you've prayed a great deal about something, and it doesn't work out for you, if you, uh, of course, that's going to disappoint you. You'd have to be, a, you, you would not be human to be not, not disappointed by that. It might produce sorrow. It might even produce, you know, sorrow or tears, a period of mourning, all that kind of stuff. But if after that you're able to move on with life, then whatever that thing was, it was not your God. If, however, on the other hand, after you work for something, you pray for something, uh, and, and it doesn't ever pan out for you the way that you hoped it did, if after that you are basically unsure of who you are, you've lost a future orientation, and you no longer have the will to move out into life, I'm not talking just about suicidal ideation. I'm just talking about a loss of a a vigorous will to go out and make a life for yourself. If that's what you're dealing with, then whatever that thing was, that was your God. It's as simple as this. If when a relationship is over, your life is over, that relationship was not a relationship, it was your life. 
If when your kids move out of the house, your meaning in life moves out of the house, those kids were not your kids, they were your meaning in life. We could go on down the list, but I think the point's proven here. Look at how you respond to unanswered prayers, frustrated hopes, but if even that doesn't quite get the job done, I saved the, actually it's the worst for last because this one nails everybody to the wall. Simply look at your most uncontrollable emotions, specifically the ones that never really seem to lift and they drive you to do things that you know are wrong. I'll give you a couple examples of this. Uh, anger that does not quite fit the situation that you're in. All right, maybe you're listening to this and you had an experience this week or whatever it was um, where you experienced something irritating, you experienced something annoying, but you had a volcanic eruption. And when the dust settled, even if you wouldn't admit it to anybody else, you know that anger was coming from something deeper than whatever you experienced in that moment. It was just kind of like, a, a, you know, that was the excuse for it to vent. But that anger did not match what you experienced. Uh, on the other hand, it could be um, anxiety that you know is over the top. Maybe you experience something that anybody would be a little bit worried about, anybody would be a little bit concerned about, but your anxiety had both hands on the wheel and you were no longer in control. That's a great indicator. <clears throat> May, if it's not that, uh, maybe you've experienced unrelenting guilt over something that you've done or failed to do. You know, it doesn't matter to you that the Bible says your sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. It doesn't matter that the Bible says Jesus died for your sins and was raised for your justification. You just can't let this thing go. You can't stop beating yourself up about it. It's unrelenting guilt over something you've done. Or on the other hand, the other side of that coin is maybe it's not guilt aimed inward. Maybe it's bitterness aimed outward. Maybe if you were real honest, you're dealing with, with unrelenting, unresolved bitterness over something that somebody else did to you or failed to do for you that, again, you just can't let go of. Or here's the last one. We talk about uh, anger. We talk about anxiety. We talk about uh, guilt. We talk about bitterness. Here's the last one. Just a crippling fear of what lies ahead. You know, if, if you find yourself, <clears throat> again, there's, there's normal kinds of concern. There's no, normal kinds of worry. There's normal kinds of, uh, and then there's a fear that just, it dominates you. And maybe you can momentarily distract yourself from it, but you know it, it's, it's always there and it's just waiting to rear its ugly head, whether it's a constant the sky is falling mentality or you're always waiting for the worst case scenario or it's the, it's the fear of your own mortality and that, that's really grabbed you to the point that it's, it's robbing you of peace and joy in the present. All of those uncontrollable emotions are a human heart's way of letting you know there's an idol that we have yet to deal with somewhere buried underneath there. <clears throat> so the summary statement here is if we trace our most volatile emotions back into our hearts, we will find what's taken the place of God in our lives. First off, idols have to be identified. <clears throat> but as the G.I. Joes once told us, knowing is only half the battle. So secondly, <clears throat> idols need not just to be identified, they need to be replaced. <clears throat> this will be kind of uh, the last idea. Just give me a few minutes to walk us through this. And this is obviously, this whole teaching is actually useless, and, except for this last part, so... Even if you hit the snooze button, just please tune in here for the last few minutes. Scripture says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, that we, rush, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. That means um, that, that our, our struggles in this life are not just psychological, uh, because Scripture says you have what the Bible refers to as a soul. <clears throat> that means that our idols are not just psychological forces, that there is a deeply spiritual nature behind them. 
And that, therefore, means we can't just decide to deal with them in and of our own power. And I'm just speaking from personal experience here, uh, but also, you know, having uh, had the benefit of of meeting with people one-on-one over the last 10 years, one of the things that causes Christians to stall out and to become so discouraged is we shift into this mindset of thinking that we can deal with our idols on our own. Uh, and, and we can't, when you say deal with idols, here's what we have the ability to do. Through, through sheer grit, through force of will, or through just, you know, if you're an incredibly disciplined person, what we can do is we can stifle a particular expression of idolatry, but all we can ultimately do is simply trade one version of idolatry for another. If all we're relying on is our will, it's just going to be whack-a-mole. And whatever that issue is, it's going to pop up in another area of your life before very long. There might be a momentary period of kind of euphoria where you feel like, you know, you're doing it and you're living the life, but then eventually you're going to realize you're not actually any further down the road than you were, which leads to a lot of discouragement and a lot of despair. And I think a lot of people just kind of They run out of gas there because it's a very deflating thing. What we need to realize is the only way to deal with idolatry, the only way an idol's power can be broken in a human heart according to the Bible, here it is, is if that idol is replaced with something that is stronger than that idol. Now this, I don't think this is going to surprise you, is where Jesus comes in. The way to deal uh, with an idol, thank you very much. Now I'm ready. <laughs> the, way, um, the way to uh, uproot an idol in a human heart in a lasting way, the only way that that happens is when we, when we see Jesus as more attractive, more compelling, more beautiful, more fulfilling, and more satisfying than whatever idol we have functionally been worshiping in his place. Don't know what that's about. Uh, And there's no better picture of this in the Bible, uh, of of really an entire society doing this, than the city of Ephesus as recorded in the book of Acts. One second here. The book of Acts, as you're probably aware, is a record of the birth and the early development of this movement that we're a part of, known as the church. And it's the story of how the gospel message moved out of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria and eventually the ends of the earth. And of course, the Apostle Paul, the one who wrote this letter we're looking at today, was the one who primarily took it there. Uh, Paul was a strategist. He knew that if you're going to change the culture of an empire, you need to aim at the cities of that empire. And in Acts chapter 19, Paul strategically went into the ancient city of Ephesus, which was actually the place where uh, pretty much all of the idols of the Roman Empire were manufactured. Uh, and, and what happened there, uh, it, it's interesting, if you want to think about it this way, if, uh, if you want to think about the Roman Empire as a, as a body, then Ephesus was essentially its heart. And like every human heart, it was absolutely filled with idols. <clears throat> and what we see in Acts chapter 19 is that when the gospel went there, it completely, I mean, in a convincing way, it defeated the idolatry there and literally turned that city quite literally upside down, which is a really encouraging picture of what the gospel can do to literally anybody's life. And there's a, um, there's a summary statement of it in Acts chapter 19, verses 17 to 20. It says, This became known to everyone who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. Then fear fell on all of them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices, while many of those who'd practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. So they calculated their value 
and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. In this way, the Lord's message flourished and prevailed. That's the picture of idolatry losing its grip on not just a person's life, but really a, a society, an entire community's life. What we're told there is that people got all of these idolatrous idols and, and books and tomes together, and, uh, and they burned them, and the value came out to be 50,000 pieces of silver. That's a modern-day equivalent of $6 million. There was a lot of money to be made with all of those items. But what you're seeing there is these people had so lost their taste for idolatry that they would rather eat that. They would rather burn those idolatrous items than make a penny off of them just to see somebody else get enslaved to the lifestyle that the Lord Jesus Christ had just liberated them from. That's what freedom looks like. Now, if I can just get a little personal here, we're almost done. But when I was driving in this morning, you know, having had seven days to think about the topic of idolatry, obviously, that's going to bring me to the point where I'm painfully aware of the idols in my life. And I just found myself telling my Father in heaven this morning, I would love, and if you, if you can't relate to this, I can't relate to you. I would love if I could just love the Lord my God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength and love my neighbor as myself. My life would be so much better, and I would be so much better if I could just do that. But when I look back on my 36 years on planet Earth, what it is in a sense, it's the story of somebody that just perpetually looks to something or someone other than Jesus to give me what only Jesus can give me. And why do I need to learn that lesson one more time? And, you know, God, by his grace, obviously is working with me, but I am a work in progress emphasis on the work part there. So I look at what happened in Ephesus where the power of idolatry was broken in a lasting way and these people experienced freedom for the first time in their life. I see that and I think, I want that for me. I want that for us. The question is, how do we get there? And the the answer is right. It's as simple as it is profound, but it's right here in verse 17. The power of idolatry was broken in their lives when and only when the name of Jesus was magnified in their hearts. That's the formula for lasting change. That's what, that's what we mean when we say that an idol must be replaced with something more than that idol. In the gospel, the gospel is how Jesus is magnified in our lives. So let me call the worship team up, and I'll preach the gospel to you one more time. <clears throat> the reason that we end every teaching with this message that we refer, we, we refer to as the gospel, which what's the gospel? It's just what Jesus did for us with his life, his death, his resurrection. The reason that we end with that every single week, the reason that we never get away from that is because the gospel is the reminder that Jesus did for us what no idol can or ever will do for us. He gave his life for us. That is ultimately, that's the fundamental difference between Christianity and idolatry, between true and false religion. In idolatry, your God will demand that you sacrifice everything. If your God is your career, it will demand that you sacrifice your family, your mental health, your rest. If your God is your reputation, it'll demand that you sacrifice your integrity. You will not be able to speak the truth and love to people for fear that you might lose their approval. If your God is money and the significance and the security that you think money will give you, then then you'll compromise all of your values and you'll sacrifice everything in life that's actually valuable in order to get more of it. But the telltale sign of idolatry is that no, no matter how many sacrifices you make, no matter how much of that thing that you get, it's never enough. 
You, you eventually discover that you're exactly as empty as you were before you started, that success is exactly as flat as failure as they say. What we have to understand if we want idolatry to end in our lives is that within Christianity, within the way of Jesus, it's exactly the opposite. In Christianity, in the way of Jesus, what we're told, and, and I just would offer this to you, what I'm explaining to you right now is the message that completely transformed the city of Ephesus. Here it is. In Christianity, what we're told is that God, instead of demanding that we give everything to him, instead of demanding that we sacrifice everything for him, was actually willing to become the sacrifice for us so that we could find what our souls most deeply desire in a life-giving, never-ending relationship with our Creator. When that message dawned on Ephesus, it transformed their lives because they realized when they heard the gospel that Jesus just gave them, or maybe it's more appropriate to say that God had just given them in Jesus what idols had been promising and failing to deliver all their lives. When they heard the gospel, when it came home, they understood what we all have to eventually understand if we want to grow up in Christ, that there's the value in Jesus. There's the value that I've been looking for my whole life, that I've been asking other things and other people to give me. God didn't spare his own son for me so that he could spare me. How could you possibly be more valuable than that? Jesus Christ went into and came back out of the grave. How could you possibly be more secure? How could anything make you feel more secure than a Savior who died for your sins and was raised for your justification and promised by grace through faith in his name that his fate would be your fate? That as he was raised never to see death again, neither will you ever see death again in him. When you realize that, that security, that safety, that significance, that strength comes home, you, you stop asking everything and everyone else to give you those things because that need has been met in Jesus. And, and so here it is, and I'll leave you with this. When we see what they saw, when we understand what they understood, when Jesus is magnified in our lives individually and as a community as he was magnified in theirs, it frees us from the grip of idolatry and it makes us agents of freedom in the lives of the people that God places in our lives. That and nothing else, that is the life for which we have been made. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father God, there's not uh, a single one of us that can, that can think through the implications of the first commandment without realizing how far we fall short, without realizing how half-hearted we are, uh, without realizing that, that most of our lives our problems have nothing to do with what's going on around us and everything to do with the idols within us that we keep asking other things and other people to, to be for us, to do for us, to give us what, what nothing other than you will ever be able to be and do for us and give us. And God, I just ask that, that you would open our eyes just the way you opened the eyes of the people in Ephesus 2,000 years ago, that we would realize that what we're looking for is in you, that we would be free from the grip of idolatry that so easily ensnares us, and that we would be a community of people that live to liberate the people that you placed in our lives for your glory and our joy. All God's people said, amen. amen.